Well, I hope you have been missing me. Yes, it is the Archaeology News, and I am your host, David Connolly. This news has been brought to you in partnership between Stone Pages and the British Archaeological Jobs and Resources, a website as long with past horizons. And all the stories have been collected from various sources. To view details in each story, including the source, you'll have to go along to the Stone Pages website at news.stonepages.com. Well, as I said, I bet you're wondering where exactly I have been. Myself as well. Been uh, working quite hard, digging up pineapples. Yes, pineapples. Well, pineapple houses uh, in a place near Haddington, as well as investigating a 16th century siege between the Scots and the English. All fascinating stuff, but not giving you the news. Well, we have now a bumper edition, so I hope you're sitting comfortably. And just to let you know, in the next few days, yes, I'm excited myself. I'm going to actually be meeting up with Diego, who's coming across to Scotland to celebrate his birthday. So, uh, a very sort of early happy birthday to you, Diego. I'm not saying how old you are. What's that, 21? Yes, I believe you. You've aged well. I will be seeing you quite soon, but before then, I think you're wanting to know what is happening in the world of archaeology. Well, we have Bronze Age evidence in the Norfolk Broads. Always good to find that. And flint napping, a rather fascinating study about looking about how it could be child's work. An Iron Age graveyard has been discovered in France. And Oatsy, yes, it's Oatsy again, almost as bad as Stonehenge. Oatsy, it turns out he needed a dentist. Too late now, I'd say. Stonehenge, oh no, not a Stonehenge story as well. Occupied 5,000 years earlier than previously thought. Hmm, I have my my special sort of furrowed brow face on for this one, but we'll get to that one in good time. After that, however, we will be heading off to Australia, the Burrup Peninsula rock art being found to be amongst the world's oldest. Then we have Iron Age artefacts found at Burrow Hill Dig in England, and then all the way across to Japan, where pottery is revealing the Ice Age hunter-gatherers' taste for fish. Yum. Ancient structures have been discovered beneath the Sea of Galilee, but don't worry, there are no aliens to be found there. And there's still no more aliens, but we have art and bodies found in ancient Indonesian caves. Then we head off to Bhopal with 4,000-year-old artefacts, and then to Greece with early Bronze Age settlement on the island of Keros. Ancient mysteries are revealed in the Turkmenistan Desert. I'll be able to tell you about some other mysteries that were revealed as well there. And climate change. Turns out it's threatening Neolithic art. Not the painted type, but believe it or not, the, the carved rock art. We finish off with the fabulously named Fraggle Rock petroglyphs of West Yorkshire as well. So, as I said, I hope you are now sitting comfortably and are ready for what is about to happen. Bronze Age in the Norfolk Broads. The complex of Middle Bronze Age field systems that were found at Ormesby St. Michael, which is in Norfolk in England, back in 2010, turned out not to be unique to the area, says Nick Gilmore. It was previously thought the systems had not existed further east than the Cambridgeshire Fens. Gilmore was involved with the original discovery, which dates to about 1500 BCE. That's the field systems, not the discovery, and features in the Flying Archaeologist television programme that's found on BBC One. 
Ben Robinson, the programme's presenter, said the area had proven a real challenge for archaeologists due to the landscape being flooded to create the broads in the 9th or 10th centuries AD. Traces of settlement have been lost underwater or flattened by the plough, but they don't disappear completely because history, I love this quote, leaves a footprint. An ancient ditch or a pit that's been long filled up will show up with different colours across the fields as crop marks. Mr Robertson said that hundreds of archaeological sites in the Norfolk Broads would now be re-evaluated. Perhaps there's an extensive pattern, a Bronze Age world out there that's just been waiting to be discovered. Well, given the amazing discoveries they've been making in Cambridgeshire, well, I certainly hope so. Now, a rather interesting article which has been given a write-up in Past Horizons magazine. Did I say Past Horizons? Of course I did. PastHorizonsPR.com. What are you doing? As soon as you've finished listening to this podcast, get yourself along there and read up some of the latest articles and news. Anyway, Flint Napping Can Be Child's Work. Well, that was the title. Now, where arrowheads, axes and other completed tools have received much of the attention by lithic specialists, this archaeologist called Sigrid Alec Dugstad from the University of Stavanger concentrated on the debris, the unfinished and discarded products. She has written an article called Early Child Caught Napping. Ooh, nice pun. Have you noticed, by the way, that you're supposed to have a pun if you write an archaeological article or do a lecture series? You've got to have some terrible pun. So I'm going to give that one 8 out of 10. The article's called Early Child Caught Napping, a novice early Mesolithic flint napper in southwestern Norway. Here, she attempts to overturn the hierarchy of artefacts from the Mesolithic period. During this early Mesolithic period, there seems to have been a ready access to flint in western Norway. Norwegian geology itself does not contain flint, but flint nodules were brought to the shores via glacial actions and ice packs that deposited the valuable resource on the shorelines. Flint napping was one of the most important technologies of the Stone Age. It would be, um, after all. And with the durability of the flake stone tools and the production debris, it ensures important information about the technological process and the social context of the acquisition of napping skills are preserved. During excavations at Hundvag in Stavanger in Norway in 2001 and 2002, Five sites from the early Mesolithic were investigated. Situated a short distance from the dwelling, one of the sites turned out to be a work area where individuals were creating flint tools, dismembering animals and preparing skins and hides. Among the production debris, she found a flake axe. The axe was not functional and had never been used, discarded along with many other hundreds of flint artefacts on the site. Both the body and the edge of the axe had been so badly damaged by a succession of failed strokes it had eventually become impossible to correct the repeated errors and so the axe has been thrown away into a waste heap. Perhaps the purpose was not to create an axe but to practice the technique itself rather than produce a finished tool of course. In France, research on flaked stone tools and production debris has shown it's possible to reveal the work and movements of individuals. These studies show that debris from tool production is an ideal starting point for distinguishing between different levels of skill, and thus the playing and imitations of children. It's reasonable to assume that every individual needs basic knowledge and skills in this type of tool production, she says, 
the need to practice before achieving good results implies that children are responsible for a far larger share of these products than previously observed in the archaeological assemblage. What we see here is a learning environment where somebody has been instructing another somebody, in this case probably a child, how to create flint tools. Fabulous. What you can't see just now, because of course this is a podcast, is that I've actually been moving my hands to try and describe the emotions of flint napping at the same time. So it's, it's amazing how the very act of describing flint tool production actually tries to make my hands move in the same way. Actually, it's probably best you can't see my hands flailing around. Let's head off now to France, where in a muddy field between a motorway and a meander of the River Seine, southeast of Paris, the French archaeologists have been uncovering an Iron Age graveyard that they believe will shed light on an enigmatic culture of Iron Age Gaul. The find actually raises several questions, as no trace of a major Celtic settlement has been found in the area. The site is, however, yielding a stunning array of finds, including the burials of at least five Celtic warriors whose weapons and adornments attest to the membership of a powerful elite. At one of the 14 burial sites uncovered in the recent weeks are the remains of a tall warrior complete with his 70-centimetre-long iron sword, which still remains in its scabbard. Archaeologist Emile Mele has never seen grave goods like this before as she looks down upon a metal-framed shield uh, though, of course, the wood and leather core has long rotted away. It is well worth having a look at the images of the finds that they're getting out of this site. Buried next to the warriors are several high-status women with twisted metal necklaces known as torques and large bronze brooches decorated with precious coral. In one grave, a woman was buried next to a man separated only by a thin layer of soil. Could this mean that they were perhaps husband and wife? And he is once again joining her, or she's joining him, in the afterlife. The jewellery suggests that the dead were buried between 325 and 260 BCE in a period known as the Laten. The Laten comes from a type site in Switzerland, which runs from about the 5th century BCE all the way through to the 1st century CE. During this time, the Celtic people expanded from their core territory in Central Europe as far as northern Scotland and the Atlantic coast of Spain. They had a complex culture which included the mastery of metalworking and a trading system that spanned the whole of continental Europe, generating great wealth for the few. Just as intriguing, the excavation has yet to find any pottery or evidence of food which were often added to Iron Age burials to sustain the dead in the spirit world, or so we think. No remains of children have been found either, although this absence is common to Celtic necropolises, something that anthropologists are at a loss to explain. I've been very good there. I've been calling it Celtic. Celtic is such an intriguing word to use. I'll let you uh, find out for yourself the debate about whether or not we should actually be really using the word Celtic to describe a a culture, a pan-European culture. Very dangerous uh, piece of terminology there. Anyway, I used it, so I I think I might have got away with it. Otzi is probably the most studied Neolithic man in history. More than 5,000 years ago, he was hit by an arrow bled to death on a glacier in the Alps, as I'm sure you are now aware. The glacier, which lies between modern-day Austria and Italy, preserved his body until he was discovered by hikers way back in 1991. 
Blimey, that was 22 years ago. Extensive studies revealed that Oatsy was a middle-aged man, well-to-do agriculturalist who lived not far from where he died. He also suffered from heart disease and joint pain and possibly had Lyme disease. Since his discovery, scientists have reconstructed Oatsy's face, analysed his clothing, scrutinised his body and sequence. That's because he squeezed his genomes. I'm sure they'll still do that. But somehow, they've never looked at his teeth before. Using a CT scanner, Frank Rulli and his colleagues found that the ancient farmer had several cavities, likely caused by a carbohydrate-rich diet. It's surprising just how bad condition his teeth were. Otsi also showed severe wear of tooth enamel and gum disease. Hard minerals and milled grains abrade the surface of the teeth and the gums, exposing the bone below and making the roots loose. Who said you were better off back then? Similar wear and tear is also found in the teeth of Egyptian mummies who ate milled grains. In another five to ten years, he certainly would have lost some of his teeth. As a result of his poor dental health, Otsi would have felt pain when eating hot or any tough foods. Otsi also showed evidence of trauma to his front right incisor from being struck either in a fight or by accident. Otsi's dental problems show the results of switching from a strict hunter-gatherer diet to an agricultural one, something we should all be aware of. Hunter-gatherers were depending on meat and berries and other types of foods, while Otsi was eating processed starches and grains and processed food. The processing added a larger variety of food, but impacted upon the quality of your dental hygiene. Stonehenge. Now, this is my intriguing story of the week here. New archaeological evidence from Amesbury in Wiltshire reveals traces of human settlement 3,000 years before Stonehenge was even built. Got no trouble here. The archaeological dig a mile from the stones has revealed that people have been occupying the area since 7,500 BCE. The findings, uncovered by volunteers on a shoestring budget, are 5,000 years earlier than any previous occupation in the area. Over the past seven years, the site has yielded the earliest semi-permanent settlement in the Stonehenge area, uh, dating from around about 7,500 to 4,700 BCE. Carbon dating of material found at the site showed that people were there during every millennium in between. In a little nook at the bottom of a hill with a river running around it, a little pool, it had more people coming into it in the Mesolithic period than it's had coming to it ever since. So said the archaeologist that discovered the site. It's amazing. It's one of these... I saw the programme on television about it and done with volunteers and genuinely on a shoestring budget. They are so carefully excavating the site, piece by piece, bit by bit, saving everything. They are missing nothing, uh, doing a, a very good job and finding Mesolithic. My problem, unfortunately, is what happens next when the, the media get hold of it. Now, no laughing. The people occupying the site, so say the media, are responsible for erecting the first monument at Stonehenge, somewhere between the 9th and 7th millennia BCE, a post. Yes, I said it, a post. Actually, what you've got there is a site occupied by Mesolithic people. And the post is part of their settlement structure. It has absolutely nothing to do with Stonehenge. So here's the game for you. is You've got to find a site and somehow, in the least number of steps, connect it 
to Stonehenge. Give it a go. doesn't matter where you are in the world. You've got to try and connect your site to Stonehenge. That way you'll get onto the international media. I think the man deserves a medal for getting hold of this Mesolithic site in the first place. And that's good enough for me. Anyway, <laughs> that was a fine little rant. Let's move across to Australia where I promise I will stop ranting and tell you some news. The Burrup Peninsula, in fact, in Australia, Western Australia, it seems to have the highest concentration of rock art in the world. The carvings include depictions of human-like figures, human faces and animals that no longer inhabit the region, including Tasmanian tigers. Archaeologists have not been able to date the engravings directly, but have previously estimated that some of them have to be up to 30,000 years old based on the style of art and the weathering pattern. A new study led by Professor Brad Pillins, a geologist from the Australian National University, shows that rocks here have some of the lowest recorded rates of erosion in the world. The combination of hard rocks, low rainfall, means low erosion. So we have a potential for preserving rock art for much longer periods of time than in many other places in the world. The study, which has been published in the journal Quaternary Science Reviews, what do you mean you you don't uh, get that one? Shocking. I would sign up right now. The Quaternary Science Reviews shows that the deepest engravings could theoretically survive on the rock surfaces for up to 60,000 years. Now, again, the researchers are not claiming that the actual rock art is this old. They're saying that it could survive up to this this level. Brad and his co-author, Professor L. Keith Fifield, came to the conclusion by measuring levels of beryllium-10, which is a radioactive isotope that accumulates in the surfaces of rocks because of radiation from space and indicates just how long they have been exposed to the elements. These findings support the idea that some of the rock art predates the last ice age, which occurred around 22,000 years ago. So says Dr Ken Mulvaney, an archaeologist with Rio Tinto, who produced the most recent age estimates based on the style of the art and weathering patterns. The erosion is such a slow process that the petroglyphs could remain visible for 60,000 years, says Ken, who adds that neither he nor Brad thinks the rock art actually is that old. Based on the current evidence, people only arrived in this part of Australia between 35 to 42,000 years old. So unless you have people putting in uh, art before they actually arrive, I'm going to stick to the around about the 30,000, 35,000-year-old art, which is acceptable. Commenting on the finding, Professor Paul Tasson, a rocks art specialist at Griffith University on the Gold Coast in Queensland, said that the finds were an interesting one, but agrees that it doesn't bring researchers any closer to working out an age for the Burrup rock art. It opens up the possibility that some of the rock art is tens of thousands of years old, but a lot of the other different forms of research need to be done, I like this man, to be seen how, to see how old some of the oldest art is. Now, from uh, fabulous excitement in Australia, let's head off to something gentler at Melton Mowbray in England. A dig at Burra Hill, in fact, near Melton Mowbray. They've just discovered one of the biggest collections of Iron Age metalwork found in East Midlands. The finds include spears, knives, brooches, reaping hooks and decorative bronze trim from a shield. Borough Hill is the site of an Iron Age fort, but no major excavation had taken place there since the 1970s. The current five-year dig is being run by the University of Leicester. Dr Jeremy Taylor, the project director, said it's certainly a sizable collection and it is giving them a useful insight. 
We have excavated a series of houses and storage pits and found around about 100 pieces of ironwork, many of the finds dating to between the 4th to the 1st century BCE. Dr Taylor believes iron was not smelted on the site, but he said that they have found evidence that blacksmiths at the borough's uh, borough would have shaped the raw material into final objects. He said that the site has not been searched for some time. Borough Hill itself is a scheduled monument and because it has never been under threat from development, it just sits there. It's just sat there for over 40 years. The team's final dig will take place in June and July, after which Dr Taylor said that he hopes the finds will be exhibited permanently in Melton. Well, I know what he means. I mean, we're doing the same up here in Scotland where many of the scheduled Iron Age hill forts have just not been looked at because they're, they're scheduled, they're protected, they're not under threat from any development. But we're actually starting to look at them and what we're finding is quite remarkable. I am not going to tell you just now. You'll just have to wait for the final publication. I will tell you, however, about what pottery is revealing about Ice Age hunter-gatherers. Well, these hunter-gatherers produce pots for cooking fish. This is according to finds from a pioneering new study led by the University of York, which reports the earliest direct evidence of the use of ceramic vessels. Scientists carried out chemical analysis of food residues and pottery up to 15,000 years old from the late glacial period, the oldest pottery so far investigated. The team was able to determine the use of a range of hunter-gatherer human ceramic vessels through chemical analysis of organic compounds that have been extracted from charred surface deposits. The samples analysed are some of the earliest found in Japan one of the first centres for ceramic innovation, and date to the end of the late Pleistocene, at a time when humans were adjusting to climate changes and new environments. Until now, ceramic container technologies have been associated with the arrival of farming, but we now know that what we have is much earlier hunter-gatherer adaption. The first ceramic containers must have provided attractive new ways for processing and consuming foods, but until now, virtually nothing was known of how early pots were used. According to the research leader, Dr Oliver Craig, perhaps most interesting is that the fundamental adaption emerged over a period of severe climate change. This initial phase of ceramic production probably paved the way for future intensification in the warmer period of the Holocene, when we see much more pottery on Japanese sites. Dr Craig continues that it opens the way for further study of hunter-gatherer pottery from later periods to clarify the development of what was a revolutionary technology. It's not the first time I've actually been hearing about hunter-gatherer pottery. And again, it, it kind of shows how archaeology has moved on. One of the, the big things when I was uh, a young student was that the Neolithic was the advent of agriculture and the advent of pottery. Because, of course, you cannot move pots around. Now we're discovering, of course, that, in fact, hunter-gatherers were doing things like settling, which was a Neolithic thing, and making pottery, which was a Neolithic thing. It's all very confusing and exciting at the same time. Confused and excited sounds like me on a Friday night, or when I read this story first. It's all about an ancient structure that's been discovered beneath the Sea of Galilee. A giant stone structure, in fact, discovered beneath the waters just south of the old city of Tiberias in what is now Israel. It was first detected in the summer of 2003 during a sonar survey of the southwest portion of the sea. It appears to be a giant cairn with rocks piled one on top of the other. 
It's conical, nearly 10 metres in height and 70 metres in diameter. So that's around about 12,000 cubic metres of stonework, 12,000 tonnes. In the latest issue of the International Journal of Nautical Archaeology, researchers write that close-up inspection by scuba diving revealed that the structure is made of basalt boulders up to a metre long with no apparent construction pattern. The boulders have natural faces with no signs of cutting or chiselling. Similar, we do not see any sign of arrangements or walls that delineate the structure. It's definitely human-made and probably built on dry land at the time, only later to be covered by the Sea of Galilee as the water levels rose. Researcher Yitzhak Paz of the Israel Antiquities Authority and Ben-Gurion University believes that it could date back more than 4,000 years. The more logical possibility is it belongs to the 3rd millennium BCE because there are other megalithic phenomena from this time that are found close by. Several examples of megalithic structures found close to the Sea of Galilee are more than 4,000 years old as well. One is the site at Kerbet Betea, some 30 kilometres northeast of the submerged stone structure. It comprises three concentric stone circles, the largest of which is 56 metres in diameter. If the 3rd millennium BCE date proves correct, the underwater structure was about 1,600 metres north of a city that researchers have been calling Bet Yera, or Kerbet Karak, one of the biggest sites in the region at the time. Archaeologist Raphael Greenberg describes it as a heavily fortified 30-acre site of up to 5,000 individuals with paved streets and towering defences. Now... Professor Truman Simanjuntak from the Jakarta-based National Research and Development Centre for Archaeology is part of a group excavating Harumau, the tiger cave in Sumatra, which has yielded some very, very impressive finds, including the first example of rock art in Sumatra and the discovery of 66 human burials dating back around 3,000 years. 66 is very strange, he says. It means that this cave was occupied intensely by humans and they continue to occupy it for a very, very long time. There's still occupation traces deeper and deeper in the cave where they have yet to excavate. So the cave is very promising. The professor said the cave was one of many in the area. Up to now, they've encountered up to 50 caves and most of the caves seem to contain archaeological evidence of activity or occupation. It means that at the time the area was intensively occupied by humans. They lived in communities in each cave, maybe around 10 or 20 families, and would have had contact with each other. So I think he's looking at them simultaneously being lived in. There's also plant and animal remains like chickens, dogs and pigs, suggesting that the animals that uh, were to be found there had been domesticated and that people were living there permanently rather than acting as uh, nomadic um, hunter-gatherers. Oh, dear me, we're, we're nearly, we're about two-thirds of the way through just now. Uh, would you like to stop and um, refresh your cup of tea? No, you wouldn't? All right, on we go then. Let's hold up to uh, Bhopal, where archaeologists have been excavating 4,000-year-old copper-age stone tools. Copper-age stone tools? Well, go figure. Oh, well, I've got it, I've got it. And, and they've also been finding pottery in a remote village on the banks of the river Narmada. That's in the Harda district of Bhopal, which is the central Indian state of Madhya Pradesh. It's probably the most important archaeological find ever made in the region. 
Pankaj Raj, Archaeological Department Commissioner, say a mound covering 150 by 200 metres was discovered in the village of Birjakedi. The more that they dig, the more that's found. Some of the pottery even has aquatic figures carved onto it. Other surprises are plaques and stone beads and gaming pieces that are made of terracotta. There's bowls and dishes and spouted jars. It proves that all this comes from a period when humans started building homes and settling near the river bank. Well, according to the archaeologist D.K. Mathur and Dr. O.P. Mishra, some of the pots and jars were found intact, wait for it, with their bottoms stuck in the mud. I have been in that position many times myself. To Keros now, where I wish I was, actually, just now, as the weather decidedly changeable up here in Scotland. The island of Keros, however, is famous for the assemblage of fragmentary Cycladic marble figurines known as the Keros Horde, a collection of artefacts purportedly found by looters at the site in Kavos on the west coast of this now uninhabited Greek island of the Cyclades southeast of Naxos, which is in the Mediterranean. The figurines were said to have inspired the works of Pablo Pagasso and Henry Moore. Now archaeologists will be returning to the island to continue a survey that they hope will shed further light on the settlement and civilization that constituted the famous Horde's context with an eye towards further targeted excavations. The people who presumably produced and traded the figurines inhabited a settlement that flourished during the 3rd millennium BCE as a part of the early Bronze Age Cycladic civilization. Excavations carried out under the direction of Professor Colin Renfrew of the University of Cambridge and the British School in Athens between 2006 and 2007 uncovered more fragmentary Cycladic figurines, vessels and other objects made of marble possibly broken elsewhere before being brought the Cavos for deposition. In 2008, a large area was identified as part of a Cycladic period settlement of the nearby associated islet of Dascalio. I remember that story actually, revealing a substantial building 16 metres long and 4 metres wide, considered to be the largest from this period in the Cyclades, within which was discovered an assemblage comprising a chisel, axe adze and shaftal axe of copper. Surveys show evidence of early Bronze Age occupation on most of the islet, making it the largest archaeological site in the Cyclades. Well, I'm looking forward to the rest of that story, just as I am to this one. It's around 2000 BCE, and Gunartepe was the main settlement of the Margush or Margiana region that was home to one of the most sophisticated yet little-known Bronze Age civilizations. The fortress town lay buried for centuries under the Karakum Desert in a remote western Turkmenistan until uncovered by celebrated Soviet archaeologist Viktor Saryanidi in the last century. That's in the 20th century, I should say. Saryanidi is now 84 and he's about to spend another summer working on the site. The ruins are a centrepiece of a network of towns and settlements in the delta region of the River Mog. Morgab, which flows through Turkmenistan from its source in Afghanistan. Just 50 kilometres from the ancient city of Merv, outside the modern city of Mari, the ruins are an indication of the archaeological riches of Turkmenistan. Covering some 30 hectares from the air, the former buildings of the huge complex look like a maze in the desert, surrounded by vast walls. It would likely have been home to thousands of peoples. The town's artisans did metal casting, made silver and gold trinkets, created material for cult worship, carved bone and stone. You wanted it, you'd be able to get it here. 
It's amazing to what extent the people possessed advanced techniques, said archaeologist Nadezhda Dubova. The craftsmen learned how to change the form of natural stone at high temperatures and then glazed it so it was preserved. This year, Gonur has given us another surprise, a mosaic. Noting that such an object predated the standard era of mosaic making in the Greek and Roman antiquity. Turkmenistan remains one of the most isolated countries in the world, but still sees a trickle of foreign tourists every year, mostly on the organised special interest tours. The reason I mentioned I had, uh, this brought back fabulous memories was that I actually worked at Mayor for a couple of seasons back in the 90s as well. Lucky enough to actually be part of the team. We, we did it in the evenings, in fact. The, the Russians and myself went out and uh, searched for uh, steel furnaces and we were lucky enough to find it. And what I'm remembering about this site is, in fact, uh, <laughs> meeting Victor and uh, shall we say that uh, his team and our team got along famously and the vodka, it did flow. I remember getting there on the Friday and starting work on the Monday. The bit in between, however, was a little bit hazy. It is a fabulous country to go to. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go to Turkmenistan, uh, let nothing stop you. Now, we'll finish off on a... Well, we'll not finish off on a bit of a sad note. There's a, two notes of uh, Neolithic and Bronze Age art from up in north of England. First one is about how rock art... Uh, and the open-air panels that are being found up in northern England are being destroyed ever so slowly by pollution and desecration. Newcastle University scientists who believe there is already evidence of increasing deterioration in Northumberland rock art warn that weathering may accelerate over the next 50 years because of climate change bringing warmer, wetter weather and increased wind, which will have a devastating effect on the art. The 4,000 to 6,000-year-old decorations are typified by cup marks and complex patterns and cups and rings and grooves. David Graham, the Professor of Ecosystems Engineering, pointed out that climate models predict more intense rainfall and strengthening winds. Tell me about it. If a system has more energy, reactions will go faster and the potential for weathering will increase. Guidance is being developed on identifying and protecting rock art most at risk. Measures um, can include anything from improved drainage around the rock art panels to, I would say, covering them back up again. Now, while we're still on rock art panels, uh, we've got at least 17 previously unrecorded petroglyphs uncovered two years ago on the north edge of Rumbold's Moor, again in the north of England. The carvings were found after uncovering a previously undiscovered cairn circle close to the well-known Twelve Apostles Stone Circle. It was noticed that a small opening in the near horizontal uh, sorry, in the near horizon, highlighted a rise in the landscape, barely 1,600 metres away. The gap is not visible 20 metres or so either side of the Cairn Circle, but is very notable at the circle itself. Within minutes of exploring the area, uh, local rock art expert Paul Bennett and his fellow ramblers found a couple of previously unrecorded cut mark stones. Very simple design, and they were in line with the Cairn Circle. In the direction of the circle, a cluster of small stones were noticed on the slope. One had what looked like a single cup mark near its edge. P. 
peeling back the vegetation, Bennett begin to, began to reveal more cup and ring marks and carved lines covering almost all of its surface. The group have called it Fraggle Rock after noticing the two main cup and rings resemble the large eyes above a down-to-earth natural mouth feature, which is similar to the faces on the creatures from the children's television show of the same name. I was so hoping that actually it was originally called Fraggle Rock in the first place, but there you go. The primary design consists of at least three cup and rings, two partial cup and rings, 28 cups and several carved lines, along with some cup markings which are linked to each other. The most notable are the carved lines is the longest running from a single cup mark, almost straight in parallel with a natural ridge or deep along the rock until it meets the largest of the cup and rings. Most of the design is carved on the upper face, but a small group of cups and a single carved line are etched at the edge of the stone. Another stone bearing a faint cup and ring lies 9 metres to the south, and 18 metres west of this, a stone with at least four long carved ridges is running from the top. Paul Bennett is the author of Circles, Standing Stones and Legendary Rocks of West Yorkshire, as well as the Twelve Apostles Stone Circle and the Old Stones of Elmet. So you can... I would say get hold get hold of one of his books uh, and uh, if you're out and about always keep your eye open you never know what you will find I suppose I should try and keep you slightly up to date with what we've been doing at the Yadley Stone Circle well we were up again very recently along with the fabulous Dougie Scott who's been teaching us archaeoastronomy taking more measurements doing some uh, survey onto it to using the total station to accurately plot the now 25 stones now, I know every time I'm talking to you, there's a little a little bit extra. It's quite amazing. The stone circle actually is absolutely circular, which is about 8 metres 10, 8 metres 20, which is making the students, uh, that's Alex, Alex, Tom and Colton, it's making them think that it could be the edge of a cairn which has been rubbed out. What is intriguing, however, is that they've been looking and they've been using Google Earth to actually sort of recreate different points in time. So uh, equinox and um, Halloween and sort of uh, these sort of points uh, during the year and see what happens if you're standing there and looking at sunrise and sunset. And I would say I'm completely converted to this. One alignment would be coincidence. Two is interesting, they've now got three or four actual alignments, including one which just has me blown away. But I will not spoil that or their final story, which will be hopefully coming up towards the end of May. If you can't wait for the news and the stories uh, until the end of May, then what's stopping you from going on to Past Horizons? PastHorizonsPR.com, where you'll find all the latest stories. But you won't just find that there. You'll find news, videos, articles. You'll also be able to find uh, sites that you can join to go away on this summer or autumn. And, of course, you'll need the tools to do the job as well. And Past Horizons provides that for you too. Only the best, I can assure you. I'm an archaeologist and I make them. I don't only just do that. I also, I'm running out of steam now, run Badger, British Archaeological Jobs and Resources, www.bajr.org. If you're looking for jobs in the UK, then I'm the one to come to. You can, of course, find much, much more at Stone Pages News 
stonepages.stonepages.com. Uh, you can also download the app so you can actually be listening to this on your iPhone. Why not? So thank you very, very much for listening to this fabulously extended Archaeology News. And we hope you'll return. <laughs>